I think I'm defined by the mistakes that I make in my life. I think that naturally what I've learned is that every single mistake I've made is like, I have to fall flat on my face for me to ever walk away learning something. Like, otherwise, how do you learn? If you don't ever fail, then what the fuck is succeeding? My name is Mike Sherman. I am a graphic designer by trade. I make clothing. I help people build brands, make logos, pretty much anything tangible. Meet Mike Sherman. He's a white guy. And yes, his latest brand is called Chinatown Market, an ironic relationship that has recently garnered Mike a lot of pushback, comment flame wars, and internet stone throwing from many, well, Asians. We'll get into this in a bit, but all of these topics need a little bit of context and backstory first. At the age of 25, Mike Sherman has been through more business highs and lows than most entrepreneurs twice his age. After exiting his own label ICNY two years ago, following an ugly falling out with his former investor, Mike packed his bags and moved to LA. A native New Yorker, Los Angeles provided the clarity he would need to plot his next moves. He took some time off, bought a Volkswagen, and figured out that he actually didn't care as much about fashion as he thought. Leather has come into its own. This coat is typical of the new season styles. Cut my hands. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome back to Honest Unboxing, where today we're getting to... But before we dive into the changing face of fashion and brand building, a bit of perspective would help. I recently spent an entire Sunday in Mike's Arts District studio in Los Angeles. We spoke about the in-betweens, being in-between freelance and in-house, being in-between streetwear, fashion, and just plain counterfeiting. At the risk of oversimplifying, Everything for Mike starts and ends with the same thing, graphic design. Design-wise, got started off when I was in uh, middle school making t-shirts in my garage. I mean, my parents had an iron, I had a printer, some shit. We had the whole setup of just making t-shirts in general. Um, so I would just like take a piece of printer paper, print some design onto it, and then I would literally iron it onto t-shirts. Um, so that's kind of really where it rudimentarily started. Uh, I started selling t-shirts at my school out of the back of my car. Uh, I got suspended from school for like literally selling a t-shirt. These two kids got in a fight over it on campus. This run and gun, contrarian style, is something that would go on to characterize Mike's work as he began to get his design career off the ground. And then fast forward to college, uh, you know, I started working at like Goodwood, uh, which was like a wooden jewelry company. Uh, and I learned the laser machine, which was like kind of a gift in, in disguise. This was like 2010. Um, and so like I had learned how to use a laser machine to cut wooden jewelry. And then that kind of ended up actually getting me a job at Nike uh, working inside of one of their customization spaces. And they needed someone to operate a laser machine to cut fabric. And so I had never done it before, but to me, I was like, oh, cool. You know, I'll take the skill I have and just apply it to this. And I became kind of like the laser technician there. And so my first day on the job, it was like 
a DTG printer, a vinyl cutter, all this other stuff to make clothing, and there was a huge locker of blanks in the back. I literally walked out of that office that day with like 30 t-shirts, like customized. That kind of, you know, was my next three years after I dropped out of college was working there. The idea of just figuring it out. For many people currently working in and around a creative industry, a massive portion of their 40, 50, 60 hour work weeks are spent using skills that are either self-taught or learned on the job, not in the classroom. And this is the DNA that is threaded streetwear and street culture for the past 20 to 30 plus years, decades before Mike and many others even entered the scene. But Mike and those like him are proof that the same creative nucleus that once sparked a subculture, now turned mainstream culture, is still alive and well today. The irony is actually that many contrarians of the past are now the establishment of the present. Um, looking back, it was like a pretty big gift for me to be around all these people and just to learn what I did. And it was really like a crash course because I would have to sit down with people like Amari Stoudemire or Kanye West. I have superstitions like if my outfit isn't that good, the show is not going to be as pleasing to watch. These kind of people sit down and they'd literally be like, I want a dragon dunking a basketball. I want it in the back of a jacket. And I'd have to sit there and mock it all up and then in five minutes show it to them what it looked like. So it was a very much like learning how to design, but like on the spot in front of someone. Um, and that kind of made me what I am today, which is like a very quick turn graphic designer where it doesn't take me two to three weeks to make something, it's like a day. Mike Sherman and I first met over five years ago during my time working at Wish, a contemporary fashion and streetwear shop in Atlanta. At the time, Mike was in the midst of getting a fledgling brand called Ice Cold New York off the ground. The brand, as it would become known for, was heavily rooted in the functional needs of New York cyclists at night, and hence relied heavily on screen-printed, reflective graphics, prints, and patterns. It was, at the time, the perfect parlaying of his personal lifestyle and his design background up to this point. You know, all those beginnings led into me kind of answering a problem that I had. I was riding my bike a lot in New York, got hit by a car, and then I got hit by another car. I've been hit by three cars. I got doored twice uh, by different people getting out of cars, and then I just go over the door. I've had times where a guy was coming the wrong way. I ended up like running my hand through a side view mirror. I had to get hand surgery. You know, I've been through like every single type of accident you could have. And so through all those learning experiences, I ended up just uh, trying to answer that problem, which was by creating reflective clothing. This is really where the brand journey begins, out of a personal need. It served a utilitarian purpose for Mike, and thus the problem solving was driven out of his cycling lifestyle. This started Mike down a path that aggregated his design efficiency and vision into a product offering and brand that would be fully his to control, or so he thought. 
So I had never done my own brand before starting this brand. You know, I'd always made t-shirts and sold them out of the back of my car. Like, and then, you know, you start getting a little bit more savvy. I started the Ice Cold. Funny thing is I learned with Ice Cold, you better go do your trademark search before you start a brand. Uh, because very quickly there was like an art and like framing company in Brooklyn called Ice Cold Frames, but they also planned on selling clothing. And so they quickly were like, that's not gonna fly. I had to change the brand name to ICNY, which was really just an acronym for Ice Cold New York. But then we sold this whole idea of like, I see New York and this whole kind of visibility concept, which it was. I emailed them asking them if we could buy the rights to the name. They basically said, fuck you. It was one of those like just funny moments where every single time I'd get like ahead and think like, oh, I got this cool thing, things working, that there was always something to knock it back. Two thousand eleven, um, I started making the clothing for myself, um, and so I literally would just like put reflective onto socks. I would go to Uniqlo and buy socks, t-shirts, jackets. Pants. I would take any of the Nike gear that I had that was blank from NSW and I would just put dots all over it. My head was that like, by putting dots, I was creating this like lighter weight version of the reflective because I figured out that if I put a massive sheet of it, it was heavy, but by putting dots, it was light. So, uh, you know, started off by making like, just by customizing my own pants, my socks, my shirts, my hats. And so that whole concept turned into a brand that brand started off by me making it all by hand and then quickly shifted into getting an investment and then growing that brand and being a 300 retailer brand worldwide. Um, you know, we were distributed in over 10 countries. It's pretty obvious that at this point, Sherman is in the midst of a very familiar streetwear story, a narrative that sees contenders rise and fall rapidly off the strength of and at the mercy of the hype machine. With little business acumen under his belt and even less expertise on the nuts and bolts of things like contracts, operating agreements, and shareholder agreements, Mike began to become an outsider within his own brand. You have to remember now, coming from a freelancer mentality to a CEO-type role at the age of 22 is not an easy transition. I see why it was my first real project, something that was viable. Before ICNY, I was freelancing with Kith and I was helping them build out their whole brand. We essentially developed their logo, the Just Us branding, the Ronnie Feig logo. And then from there, we worked on a bunch of like sneaker products together and apparel and all the first kind of like iterations of what Kith was. And so we essentially established that brand and helped them grow. I mean, shit, dude, we were meeting up at Soho House before there was even an office. And it was just like me and Ronnie sitting down, coming up with the concepts for the logo. You know, and then it was just like, he wanted a box logo and, you know, it just kind of came out. The realization that some of the best ideas are the simplest. It's funny when you look at things like the Kith logo, because people would think that it was a lot of consideration and like good design. It was really just Ryan and I eating cheeseburgers, sitting at Soho House and playing around in Illustrator. It's, th it's, it's things like that that you laugh because people would always think that it's like, people always ask me like, man, that must have taken you a long time. Or like, that must have been a cool idea. It's like, no, man, it's just a rectangle with a word in it. But that's kind of the beauty of design sometimes is like the most simple things don't have to always take a long time. As our conversation continued, my next few questions for Mike really began to center around a simple idea, a simple curiosity. Are some people just built with a startup mentality? I'll explain. Take, for example, the rise of the freelancer. 
As a freelance creative living and working in an industry, peddling one's services and wares for the highest paying client, there's an inherently finite state of mind when working on one of those projects. A start and a finish. Tackling a specific set of goals and deliverables, getting a sign off, getting paid, and then moving on. The end. In the case of ICNY, Sherman's disposition towards quick turn designs, a stable rotation of clients, and finite projects perhaps was working against the continual hustle that is required to build a long-term brand. An old Macon interview with Outlier founder Abe said it best. Yeah, it's not just a, a burst of energy, it's like a sustained marathon of like tons of energy and time. I think that it's like the bastardization of the original idea, which makes you lose love of like what that original thing was, you know? So like the original idea was so pure and true. And then by the time I started bastardizing it and trying to create a bunch of products from it, I lost that love of what it originally was. So I guess, yes, like I think part of me is, is all about like jumpstarting these brands, giving them a strong heart and authentic look. But then by the time that brand becomes like that, that kind of a young adult, I found myself in my first project being like, what do I do now? You know, because I built this thing, I built the idea, has a strong identity, people know it, they understand what it's for, but what's the next step? And I think that's like the next challenge with a lot of these apparel brands is how do you scale? The brand hit almost a million dollars in sales and like it was doing pretty great and you know, things were great with the business, except for the fact that we couldn't innovate and keep up with like what the product idea was. A streetwear state of mind? Building a technical apparel brand is drastically different than growing a streetwear brand. And inherently the problem was that where I started with the brand was that I came from a streetwear world, I came from a streetwear ideology, and so naturally like, all of my ideas were streetwear, whether it be t-shirt ideas, jackets. You know, I made like an all over rain print jacket. That's really cool for streetwear, but for like a technical runner, he doesn't need a rain print jacket. He needs something that's super functional and works. In 2015, a turning point occurred for Mike and his time with ICNY. Through a series of investor-related decisions, Sherman was forced to step down from ICNY and separate himself completely from the company. For the first time since exiting ICNY, Sherman opens up candidly about the events that led to his departure from the brand. So ICNY, uh, as of May of last year, I am no longer involved in. So essentially uh, what I would call a hostile takeover, he was like a year in and he just ended up just taking, you know, I think it was like 60, 40 or something like that. I honestly don't remember the exact number, but he ended up just having more ownership in the, in the business. What was the justification of all of a sudden a year later I need to get, you know? It was just the money invested, you know, and he felt vested to a certain point and that for him to move forward, he needed to have ownership. The craziest thing was that my lawyer was my family friend. My lawyer was like, yeah, you should just sign this. But the thing was that my lawyer was also acting for the business and speaking to him also. So, and then the craziest thing is that my lawyer ended up getting cancer halfway through the business and then having to withdraw and then he got his own lawyer. And then it kind of created this separation where I no longer knew what was going on. So I never had like, I lost that like communication to say like what's happening on those phone calls that I'm not involved in. I just didn't think about like, 
I built this whole idea. I started it. I made it strong. It's on my name. Like, my name's all over the website. What's important to understand at this juncture in the story is the dynamic and power difference between starting or founding a company versus maintaining control and decision-making power about a business. But nested within Sherman's falling out is a really important and valuable lesson for any young business owner or someone looking to start their own company. How could Mike, who started the brand, whose intellectual property was the sole competitive edge in the product offering, and who spent the last three years grinding it out, simply be pushed out of his company? At first, I had 51%, and I owned the business technically, but then at a certain point, he approached me, and he was just like, you know, for us to move forward, blah, 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 it was like, I need to have ownership in this business and know that I have control. It was just really that this was my first rodeo, and I thought of it as like, I'll take any opportunity to build my idea. That's the way I looked at it. I was like, fuck being Mr. I own it all. I wanted to just like, I'll, I'll be cool. I'll be okay with saying I need help. Help me out. Help me out with some money, and like, let's make this happen. You know, and I think that approach was a little bit too free-spirited to allow what happened. You know, I essentially allowed him to like, you know, push me out of my own brand. Purely out of the fact that he controlled the bank accounts, he controlled the lawyers, he controlled everything. Now, this is the part of Mike's story that, subjectively speaking, really struck a chord with me during the interview. It was something that was incredibly relatable to me. Being fresh off the heels of founding Macon and all of the business curveballs that Eugene and I were faced with early on. To put it plainly, when you're starting your first business, you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. Seriously. And no matter how many advisors, friends, or family that give you advice, it ultimately boils down to trial and error, learning by doing, growing through failure and learning how to pivot for the sake of progression based on doing some things right and doing even more things wrong. As any young entrepreneur will tell you, the fundamental discussion about ownership versus control, what is fair or unfair, and what one person's equity share should be versus another's is way more of an art than it is a science. I don't want to get hung up here too much on this part of the story, but I do want to drop a pin here, so to speak, because there's a really important nugget of business advice that should be taken from this. For Mike, it was a full circle lesson that despite thinking he could just design early on, he ultimately needed to step up to the plate and manage more of his brand than just the fun creative parts. My whole thing was like, just let me design. And that's what I felt like. I felt like at the time, like, just let me design and let me run this thing, and then you guys handle everything else. And so I kind of trusted everyone to kind of help me out, get through it all, and then I believed that I'd build this big business. You know, that was kind of the, the overarching idea of what I had in my head. It's things like this that I look back and I'm like, damn, I really was a fool. I also look at it as like, this was my opportunity to learn. It was my college and it was like, I got slapped in the face so many times with this brand. I also acted very much on emotion, very much on a, like, just on a whim every single time things would happen. And I was very emotional, you know? I let things get to me. I would show my colors on my sleeve. I would, if I was in a meeting and we didn't agree, I would fucking let you know, you know? And I, I think I'm like learning more and more of how to navigate these business relationships.
while I was out in Asia on this tour with Lane Crawford, basically doing a bunch of customization, trying to promote the brand, um, this consultant was in the office in New York working with my investor and basically letting him know that he felt like I was unfit for the brand. So the whole time that I was communicating with this guy, he was deciding that, you know, I needed to be out. And then the next step was to liquidate everything. By the time I got back, we had, you know, two to three meetings. It was pretty apparent what was happening. And then, you know, it had to have been like a month after I got back that all of a sudden I looked at my phone and I got like a message like, your password does not work for your email. And then that's when I started figuring it out. But in a situation as convoluted over years into a business like this, is there really a North Star of what or who is right or wrong? How do you even draw the lines between what is black and white when there's so much gray area in between? At the point I was at with that brand, I didn't know what to do next. So I wasn't fit to like steer the whole project. But the problem was that from the beginning of the brand, I was told, Mike, go design. And then we'll handle the business. But then when the business got fucked up, they all looked at Mike and said, Mike, figure out what to do with the business. And I was just like, guys, I've been sitting here just trying to design and then trying to work with you guys to understand what we should do next and to be smart about the business, grow it, invest the money in the right places, like all these things that I had no experience with. I am a, I was like a 19 year old kid who worked at Nike, who like started putting reflective on the socks. And by 22, I had a brand that I had to design for full cut and sew with a merchandise collection going into Urban Outfitters and Zoomies and all these other stores and stores internationally. And I was like, I've only sold t-shirts before. It was never that I was like faking the funk and just acting like I knew what I was doing, but it was very much like figure it out as you go. And even now, a little over a year after going through this whole business turmoil, Sherman is obviously still grappling with the black and white areas from that period. What Sherman has been honest with himself about is owning certain parts of the situation that, as a more mature version of himself now, he counts as a learning lesson. Hindsight being 2020, I asked Mike if he still felt defensive about the falling out with his former investor or if he owned any of the demise of ICNY. I own being immature about my own design stuff, you know, not being able to take feedback well, not being able to like, you know, take what people were saying and be like, all right, cool, that, that actually has value and there's a reason why they're saying that, not like, oh, they're just attacking my idea. Um, all that kind of stuff, that kind of like way of handling emotion was poor. But it's the things like that that you learn from that go forward into the future to help fix those things for you and to never let them happen again. I think putting yourself into that, that pressure cooker of like, I gotta figure it out, ends up actually like producing some pretty beautiful results. You know, like when I have like 12 hours to get something done, I'm fucking throwing a ton of shit at a wall and I'm coming up with some like really cool shit and some real hot garbage. 